Good evening and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke, and on the show we like to discuss all things environmental and in particular all things community-based when it comes to climate action right here in the Midlands. On tonight's show, we are joined by two women who are involved in a pilot project in Port Harrington, and that's the Green Hub. So we will be chatting to them a little bit later on. Stay tuned for that. But first things first, in the last number of days, the government has had to say to all single adults arriving in Ireland as refugees or claiming asylum who arrive without children that We simply have no more space or accommodation for refugees. And as the island of a thousand welcomes, that is not a situation anyone wants to be in. We're well aware of refugees coming to our shores from war-torn regions and economic refugees, also or economic migrants, I should say. Also, we're very used to people coming to, to Ireland even to just visit We've put some structures in place for all of these newcomers to our shores. But what about climate refugees? What efforts are we making to prepare for climate refugees landing on our shores? Well, to discuss this and more, I'm joined tonight by science communicator and author John Gibbons to tackle the issues that we are inevitably going to face. John, you are very welcome to the programme. Delighted to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, John, you have been writing about this very topic uh, recently. In a nutshell, what would a climate refugee uh, look like or what would that scenario um, look like? Yeah, I, as you said in your introduction, at the moment, we, we, we're already dealing with uh, millions of people who are displaced globally. Now, some of those are internally displaced because of war, because of uh, other conflict, because of, of famine and so on. Um, but what we know from climate models is that we're facing down uh, into, in the coming decades, and, and, and I'm talking about sooner rather than later, into mass forced migration. This is what's called climate migration. These are people being forced to cross borders, national and then international borders, because of drastic changes in the conditions, uh, if you like, the, the, the climatic conditions in, in certain parts of the world. So we have some numbers on this. Uh, for example, we know that today about 1% of the Earth's uh, land surface is too hot for humans, about 1%. And typically, that that means uh, an average uh, mean temperature of about 29 degrees centigrade. An average mean, by the way, means that is night and day. So it's 29 degrees, which is beyond human tolerance, beyond human uh, endurance. Um, and also, of course, it's beyond the range for animals and for most crops. So basically, uh, so we know basically that 1% of the world's surface today is too hot for humans. Now, the projections as we move towards mid-century, which of course is much closer than it used to be, mid-century is is uh, a little over 25 years away. That's the extraordinary thing. When we're talking about mid-century, we're no longer talking about this distant future. So mid-century is, is kind of around the corner in, 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 in reality. And what we're looking at by mid-century is that element or that area of the world 
currently too hot for humans, expanding dramatically because of climate change. Now, some projections between 2050 and 2070 will have about 19% of the world's surface, essentially, for at least some parts of the year, too hot for human habitation. Now, that 19% currently uh, is home to between, depending on how you calculate it, two to three billion human beings. So That's we're looking at massive. Yeah, it's That's- massive. That jump from one to 19% in our lifetimes, it should yes. be said. This, the, the lifetime of anybody today, maybe in their 20s, even in their, maybe in their early 30s, really, this is something that will be occurring bang smack during your lifetime. I've got uh, two kids, one teenager, one another slightly older, and that is the future that they're looking at. So uh, this is how imminent this is, because, you know, I've been on this stump for a long, long time. And typically we used to frame it, if we don't do X, at some point in the future, you know, bad things will happen. Well, that future is right here, because unfortunately, we haven't acted. We're still not acting. And what we know, of course, is that the, the scientists use a phrase, it's called a climate niche. And what we've, what we discover is that the human, despite our flexibility as a species, we're mostly highly evolved to coping with very, very tight climate niches, typically in the range of 11 to 15 degrees centigrade as mean average temperatures that, so most of the world's population lives in this really narrow climatic niche. Now, there are people who live in the extremes, very cold and very hot, but you'll find that they generally, they're small populations and but the great concentrations of people are in this narrow niche and, and we're seeing global temperatures ratcheting, ratcheting up relentlessly. Uh, we already know that we've risen temperatures by about 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial. And uh, for any of your listeners to, who might think that that sounds like a small change, the best way to think about it is to equate. It's, it's a, a way I, I find it helpful to think about global average temperatures is a bit like the temperature in your body or in my body. The average human being, a healthy human being has a body temperature of about 37 degrees centigrade. If that rises by one degree, you're ill. If it rises by two degrees, you're very ill. If it rises beyond two degrees and doesn't come back, you're seriously ill and you risk uh, organ failure and death. So essentially yeah. our our internal organs, if, if you like, operate within a narrow, an internal climate, which is based around 37 degrees. That has evolved over tens, hundreds of thousands of years. So that's our internal climatic niche, if you like. The Mm -hmm. same applies for all other animals. So while we can go outside in minus 10 degrees, if you put on a jacket and you can sort of, you know, sit under, sit under a palm tree in 30 degrees, your internal body temperature remains remarkably constant during all of that. Okay, so that's the best way I find to think about global surface temperatures. They're very like your internal body temperature. Once that begins to rise quickly, you're in trouble. So and of course, the temperature rises that we're talking about, we've already that that 1.2 degrees has already wrought, for example, the summer of 2022. And the strange thing about the summer of 2022 is it's the most extreme summer in 500 years of record keeping in Europe. First time in recorded history that the island of Britain has recorded more than 40 degrees centigrade. And what's really scary when when somebody like me looks at this is that 2022 should have been a relatively cool year. And the reason I say that is it was the third year of what's called a La Nina cycle. That's a that's a long term global weather cycles. Now, 
La Nina very simply means you can call it a cooler cycle. So we've had three years of La Nina. Now, El Nino cycles, we always get the hotter years in El Nino years. So, for example, the hottest year ever recorded in human history was 2016. That was an El Nino year. Now, we've had a lot of hot years since then, but none of them have been quite as hot as 2016. Now, if the global climate system tilts back into an El Nino in 2023 or indeed in 2024, which is highly likely, we're going to get a horrible jump in temperatures over and above what the world experienced in 2022. Now, that really scares me. That really is something of huge concern. And I think there is an idea here in Ireland that we're kind of immune from all this. And to be honest, in 2022, we were really lucky. We avoided, for example, uh, I think our temperatures peaked out at the early 30s. Um, and also, um, we we avoided, so we avoided like, extreme heatwave conditions. Although in 2018, uh, your listeners may remember, we actually had a fodder crisis on the island of Ireland because of a prolonged drought. We ended up having to import fodder, huge amounts of fodder, uh, to keep our, our um, livestock alive because we couldn't grow enough uh, grass at the time. So we're very, very exposed, even on this relatively mm. temperate of ours, to, to changes in climate. So, and I John, think- just on that, like, and I, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. We do assume that we're in some kind of a bubble, I think, because we're a small island nation off the coast of Europe and because we have so much what we call bad weather. I think it's, it's harder for people to imagine what these temperature changes will actually look like. Does that therefore mean? that climate refugees are going to be looking to get to places like Ireland um, because at the moment, at least, our climate is less affected, if I can put it that way. Yeah, I think I think you've you've hit the nail on the head there. Look, the, it's one of the terrible ironies of climate change that the parts of the world that have done the least to drive this crisis, which is what we're talking about is the global south, are the parts of the world that are being impacted the most. So the, the areas that that haven't created the problem are the areas that are suffering first and hardest. So as people are forced away from large tracts of land, so for example, we know a belt uh, going from um, much of Central America, much of the northern part of South America, across much of Africa, through India, Pakistan, Southeast Asia, and down as far as Australasia, many of those regions are at risk of becoming uninhabitable. Huge numbers of people, massive amounts of dislocation. And the issue really here, and you you identified it correctly, those people, our fellow human beings, by the way, lest we (laughs) other them, our fellow Mm -hmm. human beings are going to be seeking shelter. They're going to be seeking refuge. Now, what do we do? Do we pull up our borders and say we're full? Um, you know, it, 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 I think this is going to be the greatest challenge of the 21st century is how humanity, if you like, copes with the fact that we're losing large chunks of the surface of the planet where humans are currently living in large numbers. That means countries like Ireland, uh, I think Europe, for example, we're going to have basically into the upper northern hemisphere. There's going to be 
a huge exodus of people abandoning the tropics and heading north, right? So, And it would uh, seem logical to me, John, that based on that information and based on the fact that this is not new information, that our leaders across Europe in particular would band together in the European Union and put some plans in place. But then you look at what happened last week where the government had to say to incoming refugees, we have no room left at the inn. Mm. And as the island of the thousand welcomes, I don't think any of us envisaged a situation like that. So, so how are we doing in terms of planning for this, which this event, which we know is coming? Okay. I, I'm going to take a quick step backwards because I, I'm, I'm choosing not to be fatalistic, right? The most important thing that we can do based on this information is everything in our power to stop this future coming to pass. Now, how do we do that? We do that by drastically reducing global carbon emissions. That means in Ireland, in wealthy countries, Ireland, for example, is the second highest carbon polluter per capita in the European Union, which is one of the highest carbon pollution uh, blocks in the world. So we, even though we're only a small country of 5 million people, we produce more carbon pollution than 300 million people living in sub-Saharan Africa. I repeat, 5 million Irish people producing more pollution, more climate changing pollution than 300 million people. So this isn't just about numbers. This is also about responsibility. This is our fault. So when people say, oh, we don't want any more, uh, we don't want any more refugees, we're full. Well, are they prepared to slash their own emissions so that the damage that we're doing, that we're inflicting on the developing world is stopped? Because if you're not prepared to do that, well, then the flip side of that is then you better be prepared to open your doors and welcome people into our country. And we're going to need to deal with this. For example, uh, I mean, if we, if we, if we briefly talk about the, the Ukraine crisis, um, we've managed about 60,000 people in Ireland, which is a wonderful achievement, by the way, in 2022. But Poland has taken over a million people. Over a million have been, have been housed in Poland. And Poland, yes, it's a bigger country than Ireland, but they've taken disproportionately huge numbers of people. Lebanon, for example, has taken in vast numbers of refugees from Palestine and other areas. So it isn't about being rich or poor. It's about having the right attitude. And for those of us who remember our history, and I think in Ireland we should all remember our history, um, back in the 1840s, uh, when the potato crop failed in Ireland, um, millions of Irish people got onto boats and got out of here to flee for their lives. Uh, now, what happened if they got to the shores of America or wherever else they landed in Australia and they were told, sorry, we're full? What would have happened? And I think it's incredibly important to understand that we are the survivors and the legacy of a generation of forced emigration. And the most important thing that we can do, I believe, is to play our part in reducing carbon emissions to reduce the impacts on the world's most vulnerable people. Because it is really important to stress here that while people may feel that this is somebody else's crisis, it is ultimately we're all in the same boat because the kind of climatic condition shifting that I've been describing here, these are powerful enough to destroy not just poor countries, but they'll also wipe out the global economy, mm. uh, destabilize our politics, destroy democracy. And unfortunately, and this is something we need to be so cognizant of, lead to the rise of ethno-nationalism and what they call eco-fascism. In other words, people pulling up their borders and 
basically uh, shutting out all so-called foreigners. So these are things that we need to, I suppose, stress test our politics about. We need to resist the rise of the of the far right. And we also need, I think, most critically to accept our responsibility. You know, if people who, for example, believe that it is their God-given right to jump on an airplane and fly anywhere they like, right? They're dumping in one of those trips, maybe to the States or somewhere, uh, more carbon, more emissions that are causing long-term harm than somebody in sub-Saharan Africa will emit in a whole year. In fact, you may have more, you personally may produce more emissions than an entire village, right? So we have to take this responsibility. And so far, I don't see us getting serious about this stuff. I see us, um, if you like, talking about it, but I don't see any political willingness so far in Ireland to say, we have a big responsibility to act here. And I, and I stress this, if we fail to act, if we, we as rich countries and within the European Union, even though we're a small country, we have good political influence within the European Union. And the European Union, probably on the international stage, is a big enough um, grouping to influence policy. We have to push hard. But of course, that has to start at home. We can't go lecturing our fellow European Union citizens about the need to urgently uh, cut emissions while they point back and say, hang on, isn't Ireland the second worst country in the European Union per capita for emissions? Aren't you doing a dreadful job? John, you mentioned the start of our conversation this evening, and I'm very conscious that our, that our time, um, the joy of broadcasting time is always against us, John. But you mentioned at the start this evening that you, you're a parent, that, that, that you have teenagers and I had a conversation with a very close friend recently where she was driving um, her sons and their friends to training for a football match or something or other. And they're all in primary school. And over the, she overheard in the back of the, the car conversations around what someone had heard on the radio. And one of the children, early primary school, had heard the earth is on fire. There's no point in trying because we're all going to be dead in five years. Now, you know, as a responsible parent, she tried to calm the situation down, but she said she could sense the fear in the car. And my question to you is, how do we, we need the younger generation to really, and as much as we, we shouldn't be putting the responsibility on the younger generation, we do need them to, to fight us and nag us into actually doing something about this. So how do we inform them in a responsible way so that we do inform them, but we don't lead to significant anxiety and we don't want to terrify them either. Yeah, I think you've you've described it really, really well there. We tread this very, very difficult line. And again, it's something as a science communicator that I, I, I'm very conscious of. Uh, on the one hand, you, you have to challenge complacency and, and misinformation. But on the other hand, you don't want to cripple people with fear. Now, between these two positions, if you like, of um, there isn't a problem, and we're all doomed, right? There are two positions. Now, what you find with those two positions is both of them lead you to the same conclusion. In other words, either there's nothing to be bothered to do or it's too late. Now, in between those two extreme positions is where change happens. That's the place where you say, yes, I acknowledge the situation is serious. Yes, I acknowledge that we're an important contributor to it. And yes, I care deeply about my kids. I care about society. I care about the future. So I want to make a difference. I want to change. Now, the best antidote to fear and anxiety, especially for the younger, is action and engagement. 
to get out, whether it's on climate marches or education and so on and so forth. And I've seen that. I've been in many of these marches, spoken uh, to uh, children's groups in schools and so on. And what you find is there's a huge well of enthusiasm that you get among the young, which is natural, of course. But you want to channel that energy and that enthusiasm and that that can-do attitude. What you don't want is to let people sort of sink into cynicism and into despair because this, the, the way I put it uh, in simple terms is this serious or this situation is far too serious for despair because if we do that, then we're letting ourselves off the hook for acting and despair. If it, if it leads to the same outcome as disengagement, which means we do nothing, then it is simply a response that we cannot afford. So what we need to do and focus on instead is, right, understand the situation, understand the bits that you can do, the bits that you can influence, and then move forward with that. Speak to your friends and neighbours about it. Speak to your your schoolmates about it. Uh, you know, phone in radio programs, uh, text in people, you know, make sure that people are having the discussion and challenge some of the norms. So, you know, um, I think we're, do we really need an SUV in the front yard? Do we need two SUVs in the front yard? And this is a question many of us have to ask ourselves. Are we overusing the resources of the world? And by the way, having enough money, that's not a good enough excuse anymore. There's only so much world to go around. And we in Ireland, especially the middle classes in Ireland, we are really seriously over-consuming our share or beyond our share of the world's resources. So I think when our kids are looking at our behavior as adults, they, they're more interested not in what we say, but in what we do. So it's really important. I mean, for example, are you prepared to, to think again about long-haul flying or about flying generally? Are you prepared, for example, to move away from, to move towards a diet much lower in meat and dairy products because these have huge environmental impacts. Do we, and these again are only following international guidelines. Are we prepared to look at things like that? And uh, for me, the most important thing is, are we prepared to talk to our politicians to vote that way? And I don't mean vote green, vote for whatever party you support. But if you, you know, if you, Make sure that the party that you support, if you're old enough to vote, that you make sure that the politicians in that party are aware that this is an issue for you. I've often heard it said, politicians say, mm-hmm. well, nobody talks about climate change on the doorsteps. Well, before the big crash in 2008, nobody talked about uh, economics either. But guess what? When the crash happened, then everybody was concerned. We cannot sit on our hands and wait for a climate cra- crash to happen because this is only going to be a one-time event. And, and, there, and basically, unlike the economic crash, there will not be a reboot if we allow a climate collapse to occur. And that well, is what people like me going. John Gibbons, on that note, we do know that in the next two years, we are going to have an election. And it's a time your mind would hear that if we do get canvassers on our front doors, the first question we need to ask is, what are your plans in terms of tackling climate change? But on that note, John, um, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I, I hope we can invite you back um, at some time in the future. But thank you very much for being so generous with your time today. Pleasure, Ashling. Thank you. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you've been enjoying the show. Just a a wee reminder that the show is available as a podcast on midlands103.com. And of course, through your preferred podcast app, you can search for Let's Go Green with Ashling O'Rourke on your Spotify, Apple, 
and indeed your Google podcast app. Just type the title of the show into the search bar and you can follow us along there. That way, if you click on follow or subscribe, depending on the app, they all have slightly different phrasing on it. But that way you can get a notification each time an episode is published. So you'll never miss one, even if you're not tuned into the radio. Also, if there's something on the show that you think you'd like to hear more of, or in fact, if you have something that you'd like us to be talking about here on the show, please do feel free to get in contact. It's lovely getting messages from you guys as listeners. The show at the very heart of it is based on community activism. And I want to continue that throughout 2023. So please do hop on midlands103.com, click on On Air Team, Ashling O'Rourke, and there's a wee button there where you can send me a message directly. Or if you have a pen handy, you can send me an email to letsgogreen at midlands103.com. That's letsgogreen at midlands103.com. As I said, I'm always delighted to hear from you and it is lovely getting your kind messages. We had a lovely email after last week's show and to the person who was so kind to send that in to us, uh, thank you very much. And indeed to everybody who contacts us um, for each and every show, we uh, read each and every one of them and we do appreciate them. I have two women coming up after the break to talk to us about a new project in Port Harlington that we're going to be checking in on over the coming weeks. It's a pilot green hub in Port Harlington. And we're also going to be learning about a brat breeder. Have you ever heard of one before? I have to hold my hands up here. It's an entirely new term that I only learned this year. Uh, yes, actually this year, like this month, I'd never heard of it before. So, um, but perhaps you know all about them and you make one every year. Well, I mentioned at the top of the programme today, this new pilot project, the Green Hub in Port Tarrington. We're joined by two ladies who are involved in the project, Nora Gannon and Rita O'Loughlin. Nora, if I might go to you first, what exactly is the Green Hub project? Um, hi, Ashling. Um, it's, it's a it's a pilot project that was um, put forward to us as a as um, uh, you know something that we could submit, um, make an application to through Leash County Council, and uh, so they cho- they 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 were choosing six towns around the country to. Um, represent their town in a project that would encourage segregation um, and alternative uses for commercial waste. So Okay. Uh, have, so it's so, around it's it's around waste in general, is it? Yes, it's around okay. waste, but it's kind of looking at how it can be used in alternative ways to encourage businesses to um you know th- rethink how they're how they're using it or how they're segregating it or, yeah, that kind of stuff. Now, I think in most office buildings, if we want to put that kind of a term on it, you know, most companies, I think at this stage, are fairly good at separating paper from the rest of the the waste. They might have a recycling bin and they might have, you know, people have cut down the use of paper in offices and then, you know, the rest might go in the general bin. So so what is it, you know, are are you looking for people to step that up a level? Uh, our 
submission really put forward an alternative idea through the Port Arlington Arts Collective. We were already um, uh, chosen to, you know, do a few projects around the town and they've been very successful, uh, different types of projects. But during those processes, we actually already kind of do use, reuse materials a lot. There's a few artists who would, you know, be very conscious of trying to reuse materials. So the Port Arts Collective, um, like there's 92 members in the collective, all various different, um, you know, different um, artists, you know, music, art, dancers. Um, So we all have different things to bring to the group. And what we decided was that we would put forward um, an idea to reuse waste um, in art projects, in art installations, in through dance, um, and bring across the message that way that um, you know waste can actually be something beautiful, or it can be reused in you know the materials can be reused in within a kind of an art arts group, whether it be for you know from set design on a stage to like a performer to, you know, an installation, a sculpture or, you know, so we're bringing the businesses together with the artists, which is something that, you know, doesn't really happen. Mm. And you don't get business and artists really working together for one kind of project like this. It was really, you know, and it's really nice because now you can, like some artists are saying, oh, you know, I can go into a shop and they, people are recognizing me or, you know, we we did we did a sit and sip, sip, Sit, sit, and stitch campaign as well, which um, encouraged people to kind of sit down and have a cup of coffee and take the time to be together. But how we did that was we encouraged them to sit with the Brack Reader group and not get the old takeaway cup all the time, kind of sit there and, you know, enjoy being with other people. And on that note, Nora, seeing as you mention the Brat Rita campaign, <laughs> we might bring Rita O'Loughlin in on this conversation. Now, Rita, as and I know we are speaking in audio terms, but as for listeners perspective, as Nora has been chatting away there, I've been able to see that Rita is stitching away at a Brat Breeder. So first things first, this was a very new term to me. What is a Brat Breeder, Rita? Um, traditionally, um, a brat, a brat freed, it, it kind of translates as Bridget's cloak. Okay. Um, and traditionally it was, um, a piece of cloth that was left outside on the eve of Bridget's day. So kind of sunrise just before, uh, sorry, just before sundown, it was left out on a bush or a tree and, um, it was brought in then just before sunrise and, they believed in the healing power of it because they believed that Bridget had passed over the land and she blessed everything as she passed over on the eve of her day. So this piece of cloth then was kept in the house in a sacred place where it was used uh, if someone wasn't feeling well, someone had a headache, uh, because they didn't have the access, uh, as we do now, to mm. chemists and doctors. And they truly had a firm belief in her healing power. So uh, this piece of cloth was was kept in, inside. And most women, I suppose, in those days 
war shawls. It was part of the, the style in those days. So yeah. um, we're just trying to revive that tradition. Um, we're up, we're using upcycled scarves, pre-loved scarves, and we're asking people to embroidery them. Uh, and the embroidery process is a kind of a, like methodical kind of, um, it's setting intention for the person who's going to wear the scarf that, that Bridget will heal them. And it's your own energy as well, your own love going in, into each stitch for that person. I was at Festival Manon the first weekend in January oh, in Moulton, yeah. County Westmeath. And, yeah. and I, 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 while I didn't get to take part, I did see a little bit of the process. And it struck me as something that it could be quite meditative, if I can say that really properly. Yeah, absolutely, Ashling. Um, and it's a lovely environment when people come together to sit and we're, sti- we're stitching together. We're, we're, we're having conversations. Um, everyone is welcome. We encourage, if you're setting up a group in, in your own community, that you make sure everybody feels welcome, all age groups. Um, so it's a way of knowledge being passed between ages. And yeah, it's just um, the stitching process itself is very methodical, but it's also, it's very um, spiritual, I would say. You know, and it's almost like a, a meditation when you're doing it, mm. you know, because you and the spiral is the symbol that we use. It's the, um, we find it very so, easy to show people how to do it. So tell me about this now, Rita, because, um, you know, for somebody who's list, obviously, uh, Bridget's Day, whether you celebrate Bridget's Day or, or Saint Bridget's Day, and we won't go down that particular rabbit hole just this evening, yeah. but, um, it's it's fast approaching, you know, it's only a couple of days away now. So if you yeah. are listening to this and you're inspired and you want to give this a go, I can see that you have needle, thread, an embroidery hoop and a scarf. Is is that all you need? That's all you need. Okay. And what I And then yeah, sorry, go. What, how do you start? You you're you're starting in the center and making a stitching uh, like a tack stitch in a in a spiral the way out. We're actually starting on the outside. Actually. Oh, sorry, I apologize. So we're so we're using the the rim of the the hoop as mm-hmm. a guide to help us go around. Okay, and then obviously as you come to the almost a closure of the first line that you've made, you're starting to move in in that and creating that spiral. Um, and it is you're you're right. It's a very simple stitch, but it's a very impactful stitch if mm-hmm. you use different colors. You can use it in different ways. Uh, you can overlap your spirals. Um, I'll show you one here. Um, I know your listeners can't see it, but you can get a little idea there of, you can be really creative with it, with lots of colours, Ashling, and that. And Can you see that, Ashling? I can. And Rita, the spiral, you say, that's an important part, but can you, I suppose, personalise it, you know, um, just go go with your own take on it? You could absolutely ask things, but in relation to um, setting up a little group, we would always say this is not something that requires a specific skill set. And sometimes people feel, oh, I can't, like, for example, a knitting club, I can't knit. Mm. Um, so when they hear the word embroidery, or, or um, and, and if you're showcasing items that are too complicated, it puts people off. Yeah. Whereas if you show somebody, it's just simple spiral. Anyone can do it. Like I'm doing it in the in the schools with ten year olds. I'm doing it with um in rehab, people with disabilities. Anyone can do this, Ashley. You know, really, anyone can do it. Um, at the, the lovely thing about it as well is that, like anybody who gets involved, um, 
puts their own take on it. Yeah. So yeah. You, you can see people who are like, oh, I could never do that. And they were coming into the group in the cafes and they were like, oh, I don't think so. There was a man with his daughter and, he, and his daughter was like tiny, like she was only about five and she did it. And then he added to it. And it was so lovely. Like mm. he added to what she did and he, he was reluctant at first, but then he, he actually took part and he was like, oh, we could do this at home, you know? So like anybody can, and it, it suddenly changed to being, you know, something really colorful, like Rita said, like, because, you know, different colors of the wool and, you know, you give it, you could see the confidence in the child even grow and as she was doing it, you know, it was just, it's a lovely, because like you said, it's so simple, but then people start to realize actually it's simple, but I'm actually, I can do more with this. And you see people, that, so, I, you know, I can imagine what it's like for people in rehab because mm. I haven't experienced that. I've just experienced the cafes so far like that, um, you know, that, that they're just, they, they're, they're relaxed. They're getting more and more relaxed as they're doing it. So good for mental health. It's so good for, you know, when you get that chat about the environment as well, that we're reusing these scarves and people might pick up a scarf that they were going to throw out and just go, oh, I'll use that one to do. And like, yeah. Let's be yeah. honest about it, girls. Like we all have a scarf in the back of the hot press that it's been forgotten about, you know. So Absolutely. like why not take it out and give it a go? Like, and this doesn't have to be perfect. There are no strict no. rules. It's just give it a go. And Nora, I know that in the Green Hub, you've been talking about the project and publicizing the project through your Facebook page. Are there pictures from the sit, sip and stitch uh, gatherings? Can we see, can we get some inspiration from completed brat breeders perhaps? Definitely just go on to the Green Hub page and you can go on to the brat breeder. Um, my brat breed, um, it, on Instagram, um, so it's my brat at my brat breeder, isn't it, Rita? Yeah, that's right. right, Nora. Yeah, yeah, and right. uh, the same in um the Green Hub, Port Arlington Green Hub, and you'll just find, you know, you'll see them there. Um, there, there's all sorts of different ones that different people do have done them, and you can see how they all put their own kind of energy into it and you, you can just see the people's faces they're just it, it's so such a happy thing for people to be doing you know they're always and happy afterwards and if our listeners have been inspired tonight and think do you know what I'm gonna it's a dark week you know it's dark evenings why not just give it a go take a picture send them in to us here at let's go green at midlands103.com we would be delighted to see them Rita and Nora, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you this evening. Nora, I, I know when we spoke off air, your Green Hub project, it's continuing up until April. So we might touch base once again to see how it's all progressing. Great, yeah, we'll see how they all, everybody will be together at that <laughs> stage. All the various groups, hopefully it'll all be linked in then by that stage. Well, Rita... Rita O'Loughlin and Nora Gannon of the Green Hub Project in Port Arlington. Thank you both for your time this evening. And I'm sorry to say that's all we have time for on this week's episode of the programme. I hope you've enjoyed the programme this week and indeed, as always, as I said earlier, please do get in contact with us. We do love to hear from each and every one of you. And thank you to those of you who are tuned in outside of the Midlands on Spotify, Apple and indeed Google Podcasts. Have a great week. 
I'll be back in two weeks time, actually because we have our very first Bridget's Day bank holiday next Monday, the very first bank holiday, as I understand it, to celebrate an Irish woman. So um, ladies, have a great long weekend and I hope you are spoilt rotten over the couple of days that's in it. We might as well enjoy ourselves while we can. Have a great week and we'll be back in a couple of weeks time here on Let's Go Green.